Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. Well, you know, the, the cool thing about doing a news talk show is the news component of it. Uh, sometimes news breaks. You've spent all morning preparing your show and suddenly 10 minutes before the show, you're diverging. It's actually kind of cool. It keeps you on your toes. And well, we have major breaking news happening at the start of this here program. We'll get to phone calls, the phone number, all that later. Just just um, prepare yourselves. Stephen Breyer is going to retire from the United States Supreme Court. I think we all kind of knew this was coming. What is so interesting about it is he's signaling it now. Uh, it is, if you're listening live and on time, January 26th, 2022. The Supreme Court term does not end until June. So why announce now? This is actually one of the earlier retirement announcements for a Supreme Court justice. Normally, they wait until towards the end of the term. Uh, I've got my suspicions. I'll get into my suspicions here, but let me give you the background here. Uh, he's been in the federal court system since 1980. Jimmy Carter appointed Stephen Breyer to the First Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, he got in office December 10th, 1980. He was there until 1994 when Bill Clinton appointed him to the United States Supreme Court. He is the last of the Bill Clinton appointees on the United States Supreme Court. Ruth Bader Ginsburg had been the other one uh, there with him. Sandra Sotomayor and Sonia Sotomayor and, and Elena Kagan are Barack Obama appointees. Uh, Clarence Thomas has been there longer than anyone. He was appointed by George H.W. Bush back in the early 1990s, uh, late 80s, early 90s, and um, he, he will be, he's the oldest member of the court still there, longest serving, I should say. Breyer is, how old is he? 83 years old. He's older than Clarence Thomas, uh, but has not served as long as Clarence Thomas. There's something to be said for appointing younger jurists. Now, there are a lot of people out today on the left and the right already saying, Merrick Garland, it's his turn. Merrick Garland, put him there. Uh, the attorney general famously denied even a confirmation hearing by Mitch McConnell and the Republicans when Barack Obama nominated him. But the problem here for Merrick Garland is he's old. Merrick Garland, let me get his age for you here. And, and again, I'm, I'm doing this on the fly. The news just broke. He's 69 years old. <laughs> 69 years old. He could be a fun one on the Supreme Court. <laughs> um, he's too old to be on the Supreme Court. It'd be hilarious put put Merrick Garland on. He's 69 years old. He serves for 420 days. That's the end of it. The hippies have their fill of it. <laughs> I kid, I kid, I kid. Uh, he's too old. I mean, Clarence Thomas, how old is Clarence Thomas here? Let, let, me, let me do this one real quick, uh, just so we have perspective here. Clarence Thomas is 73. So Clarence Thomas is only 73 years old. He's 10 years younger than Stephen Breyer. He served longer on the court than Stephen Breyer. As much as, yes, there would be some fitting poetic justice and irony for the left, if you nominated Mary Garland, he's 69 years old. You want to appoint someone who's going to be there a long time. That's one of the smart things that uh, the right convinced uh, um, Donald Trump to do is put young jurists on. Amy Coney Barrett is 49 years old. Brett Kavanaugh is 56 years old. Uh, Neil Gorsuch is 54 years old. How old is John Roberts now that I'm, I've done all this? John Roberts is 66 years old. 
You don't want to put a 69-year-old or you don't want to put a 60-year-old on. You want to find someone in their 40s, if you can, or early 50s to get on the Supreme Court. Now, the reason you want to do this is because they can serve a very long time and build a jurisprudential body of work. And Stephen Breyer, to his credit, has. And this gets to why is he leaving? Stephen Breyer, even though he is one of the progressives on the Supreme Court, one of the liberals on the Supreme Court, has actually been very, very influential in shaping the Supreme Court. He's been very influential in shaping a particular aspect of the Supreme Court, and that is corporate law. You see, Stephen Breyer, before he became a uh, judge appointed by Jimmy Carter to the First Circuit, uh, Stephen Breyer was an assistant U.S. attorney in charge of the antitrust division. So Breyer has actually been monumental in taking cases at the Supreme Court that are corporate focused on copyright, on patent, on trade and antitrust, areas of the law that are very complex, even for judges and lawyers. So, for example, I was a I was a corporate lawyer. I was a business lawyer, but there were aspects of business law that I was completely out of my league on. Uh, I did uh, in a domain. I did transactional work. I did bond work and did corporations. I did uh, bonds in lieu of uh, property abatement taxes, things like that. But antitrust law out of my out of my wheelhouse. It is a complicated subject. I have a friend of mine in New York who works for a major law firm up there that does corporate law. He is an expert on a single section of the United States Code. That's right. A single section of the United States Code. The United States Code is over 50 bound volumes of 50 titles of various laws, and he is an expert on maybe 500 words of the entire multi-hundred-thousand-word federal code. And he makes really good money at it because that area of law can be so nuanced. Stephen Breyer has that level of expertise in that. And you will note, by the way, Stephen Breyer, if you look at his uh, legacy on the Supreme Court, has actually written some major decisions that were not the standard 5-4 split. They were oftentimes either unanimous, 8-1 or 7-2 decisions when it comes to corporate law. Very famously, he decided the Google versus Oracle case. Uh, over Google copying 11,500 lines of Java code, uh, and he decided that it was fair use. And it was only 38 pages long, the opinion. Uh, and Breyer, actually, it was it was essentially a very good case because what he argued in the Google versus Oracle case, and a lot of conservatives hate the case because they were on Oracle's payroll, if we're honest about it. Oracle hired a lot of conservatives and a lot of conservative outside agitating groups to advocate on Oracle's behalf against Google. But essentially, Breyer got the case right, I think. And what he essentially said is that new programmers learn by learning old code, on learning off of old code. And essentially, Google copied 11,500 lines of Java code, Java is a programming language that a lot of computers have used in the past. It amounted to four-tenths of 1% of Java code. That would be fair use because, and I quote, three of these packets were fundamental to being able to use the Java language at all. 
By using the same declaring code for those packages, programmers using the Android platform can rely on the method calls that they're already familiar with to call up particular tasks, but Google's own implementing programs carry out those tasks. Without that copying, programmers would need to learn an entirely new system to call up the same task. Now, that's gobbledygook for a lot of you, but essentially what he's saying is that it would make it way more expensive for the public had Google had to go out and reinvent all of this stuff on its own and train up new programmers in ways that programmers had never been taught before because of Java. All they did was they took less than a single percentage point of Java code to be able to reimplement something brand new. That's fair use. People building on old ideas, essentially, except instead of old ideas, you're building on old code. That's what Stephen Breyer was known for on the Supreme Court or is known for on the Supreme Court, taking those cases that are very complex business law on copyright law and patent law and making them more easy to understand. Now, he didn't always get it right. Sometimes he complicated and muddied the water. But by and large, he was the guy even the conservatives on the Supreme Court would go to and say, hey, we need you to write this opinion and make it easy for everybody to understand. And, and that's what he would. Now, he was on the left on, on social issues, on, on things like that. He was on social issues, on business law cases. He was pretty pro-business. You got to remember back in the day, the Chamber of Commerce was not opposed to Stephen Breyer. When Bill Clinton appointed Stephen Breyer to the U.S. Supreme Court, made that nomination, the U.S. Um, Chamber of Commerce did not oppose Stephen Breyer in large part because he is very, very business friendly. In fact, Stephen Breyer has a brother, Charles Breyer. Charles Breyer is a federal judge as well. He is now a senior judge uh, in the Northern District of California. That's the San Francisco area and up. And what was Charles Breyer known for? Business law. Runs in the family, I guess. He also, uh, by the way, authored the 7-2 Majority in 2000 Friends of Earth versus Laidlaw Environmental Services uh, that people who use the North Tiger River for recreational purposes um, had standing to sue industrial polluters even though they didn't uh, use the river because of pollution. There, there are some famous cases that he's been involved with even in um, major, major uh, cases. However, he's more known for his dissents. He is known for his dissents against the conservatives. For example, he dissented in a lot of the uh, voting rights cases. He did, however, write the majority for the Alabama Legislative Black Caucus versus Alabama uh, that ruled racial gerrymandering has to be looked at case by case. But he joined Ruth Bader Ginsburg's dissent in Shelby County versus Holder, the 5-4 case that stripped uh, Section 4B of the Voting Rights Act. He is aggressively liberal, believes that the Constitution evolves, and in fact has argued uh, that the death penalty should be ended, even though it was legal to begin with, because our notions of liberty have uh, evolved. What we're actually going to get probably on the Supreme Court is someone who's more to the left than Breyer. Breyer, uh, by the way, uh, replaced Harry Blackman on the Supreme Court. Blackman, one of the famous players in the Roe v. Wade decision. And that, I think, is probably why he's retiring. In the last couple of weeks, there have been a lot of signals from the United States Supreme Court that they are ready to move on from playing defense for conservative policy to actually rolling back the liberal, legis liberal judicial wins of the last 50 years. 
A lot of people say, oh, well, the conservatives are getting aggressive. The conservatives are going to be the proactive ones. Conservatives are going to court to get wins in the court. Well, yes, but you have to understand it in proper context. That's like saying Mitch McConnell got rid of the filibuster for uh, judicial nominees when actually it was Harry Reid who did it. McConnell just finished it. Over the last 50 years, progressives have not been able to make a lot of headway in the democratic institutions of government in order to get their way on policy. From gay marriage to abortion, you name it, all of their wins have largely come from the court system, not from the legislature and not from the executive because they're not overwhelmingly popular with a lot of people. So they've had to go through the court system. But over the last 50 years, conservatives have pushed back and and waged a very aggressive campaign to install and appoint, nominate, approve conservatives to the courts. And it came to a head during the Trump administration where the Trump administration largely filled up the circuit courts. Those are the appellate courts of the United States with a bunch of conservatives shifting, in fact, three of the circuit courts to the right. The Fifth Circuit, the Eleventh Circuit, and one other, and, and came to parity at the Ninth Circuit, the most liberal circuit in the country. Cases go to a federal district judge, and they are appealed to circuit judges. And the circuit judges cover multiple states, and then those go to the Supreme Court. And generally, those circuit judges or circuit courts operate as many Supreme Courts. What they say applies to their area of states. And the only time cases go to the Supreme Court is when there's a wild deviation from existing law or two circuits disagree with each other. Those have to go to the Supreme Court because otherwise one part of the country would be under one law and another part of the country would be under another. So the Supreme Court has to reconcile them. That was, for example, the mask mandate issue had to be resolved. Because the Fifth Circuit and the Sixth Circuit came to different decisions on whether the mask mandate was constitutional, it all had to go to the Supreme Court for resolution, and the Fifth Circuit won. The conservatives won. There's a tendency now for conservatives to be able to go to the courts and roll back all the gains that liberals got. And a big one may very well be coming, Roe v. Wade. Stephen Breyer was always going to retire this year. He had to retire. He's 83 years old. They saw what happened to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. He sees the political landscape. He wants to make sure he retires while the Democrats still control the Senate. I was actually going to start the show with some stories that highlight the Democrats think they're going to lose the Senate now. Stephen Breyer thinks the Democrats are going to lose the Senate now. He wants to get out there and get someone nominated quickly. He's probably not going to retire until June, but this now gives the president a lot of time to find a young jurist to take his spot on the Supreme Court and get through a Democrat-controlled Senate. Well, Democrat in air quotes, it's 50-50. They're going to have to get Manchin and Sinema, which means he's not going to be able to go too far left. Manchin won't let him. You're going to have to have a pro-business Stephen Breyer type to get on the court. But why do it now? Why do it now? He didn't have to do it now. I mean, they're already mapping out who could replace him. They already expected him to retire. My guess is that the press reports are right. The Supremes have decided, 6-3, they're going to go to the right now. Stephen Breyer has no more influence to persuade a majority to come his way in anything, particularly in the Dobbs case that would get rid of Roe v. Wade. I read his willingness to announce now in January as opposed to waiting until April or May as he's throwing his hands up. He knows the game is up. He knows he's no more persuasive to those six justices, particularly the five justices, and probably they've decided Roe is going to go away, and so now is might as well be gone from the Supreme Court. I have a suggestion. 
I, I have a brilliant suggestion. I do. So the United States Senate is split 50-50. Stephen Breyer, though socially liberal, was known to be a pro-business justice of the Supreme Court. He's retiring. If you're just tuning in, Stephen Breyer is retiring from the Supreme Court at the end of this term. He's not going to leave early, it appears. So Biden needs to find someone who can get Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema's vote, who is as pro-business as Breyer, because let's be honest, despite what the progressives want, Joe Biden really doesn't want to be anti-business. And even if he did, he wouldn't get Joe Manchin or Kristen Sinema's vote. So he needs someone who has a, a track record, regardless of what they say in life, their actual track record is very pro-Chamber of Commerce, pro-business. He needs someone who would be reliably to the left socially, reliably to the left on everything except business policy. And Joe Biden could make a pick that also eliminates some of the other headaches he's dealing with because he's got some real headaches he's dealing with in Washington, and uh, some of them could be neutralized and get through the United States Senate in large part because he would be putting a former senator on the Supreme Court, and the Senate always puts their former senators on the court with very few exceptions. He could kill two birds with one stone. It would be a bold pick. And this justice would only be a year older than Brett Kavanaugh, so the justice could serve for 20, 30 years. Kamala Harris, Vice President of the United States. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson. Now for the phone number. The number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Let me do a real reset here. I, I, and again, uh, we got breaking news today happening out of the gate at the start of the show, and that is... That Stephen Breyer, the justice, associate justice of the United States Supreme Court, is going to retire. It does appear it's not an immediate step down. He's doing this to give the Democrats time to find someone who can navigate uh, the wilds of the Senate. The Supreme Court term tends to end in June. So he's got, I mean, he's given them basically six months to get it in gear and find a replacement to start. The Supreme Court term will start in October. They're already taking some aggressive cases in October. So, for example, we know the United States Supreme Court is going to take the case on race-based admissions in October. I do kind of wonder if knowing the Supreme Court is taking a race-based admissions case in October, if um, that may have something to do with Breyer wanted to go on and give heads up so they can plot around some of the cases the court is taking in October. Here's my suspicion. The president is going to want to find someone who is non-white, probably female, but will have to find someone who can get Manchin and Cinema's votes. In particular, I mean, you can only really lose one unless a Republican jumps over. I, I, I'm, I'm being somewhat humorous here, but Kamala Harris. Now, the problem is Harris couldn't vote for herself in a 50-50 Senate. She wouldn't be able to vote for herself. So could she get a Republican vote? Possibly a Collins, maybe Murkowski 
would vote for Kamala Harris to put on the Supreme Court. You may even have a Romney or someone there and in the spirit of comedy, give the Democrats this pick. That could be possible. I don't know. It would also take away a lot of the headaches that Biden is having when it comes to dealing with Kamala Harris. But nonetheless, nonetheless, um, he's going to have to, Biden is going to have to find someone who can thread the needle on business interests because Manchin, in particular, you got to remember one of Manchin's interests here is the environment. And I realize that the president could go far left radical and that person won't have much of an impact because you've got a 6-3 Supreme Court, but you've got to remember the issue of John Roberts. John Roberts is a conservative. Now, you don't need to send me hate mail or hate phone calls over any sort of defense of Roberts. You just need to understand how I view Roberts. And my view of Roberts is informed by knowing people exceedingly close to John Roberts. That Roberts is a conservative and has at times helped build case law for the conservatives to seize on. But Roberts is also the chief justice. And you and I can disagree, and I do. But Roberts himself views his job as preserving the integrity of the Supreme Court to make it seem as if it is uh, aloof to and out of touch with and uninterested in politics. Now, my personal view is that in doing that, it makes him look even more political. Roberts, for example, on Obamacare, I am convinced it was absolutely a political decision by John Roberts to try to keep the court out of that fight and throw it back to the uh, legislature. And in fact, in so doing, Robert structured his Obamacare decision in a way that allowed the Republicans to undermine key aspects of Obamacare. They could have gone all the way. They did not. But Roberts wasn't going to throw out Obamacare, even though I think he should have. Anthony Kennedy, it seems history shows, wrote the majority decision to gut Obamacare altogether. And then Roberts broke off at the end because of the pressure campaign in the media. And in so doing, really made the court seem more political. Uh, the irony here is that John Roberts, every time he tries to make the court look less political, winds up, winds up making it look more political. But that's his intention. You and I can disagree with him. But just understand here that Roberts is institutionally a conservative. I mean, for goodness sakes, he and his wife, were major, major donors to and proponents of the pro-life movement. It's one of the major attacks on Roberts is that his wife was, until he was on the court, one of the leaders of Feminists for Life, a, a feminist organization dedicated to the pro-life cause. She had to step down from that position when he got on the court, but he is very much pro-life. I wouldn't be surprised to see him in the 6-3 decision. I wouldn't be surprised to see him try to thread the needle to uphold the Mississippi case without completely overturning Roe because Roberts at heart is an institutionalist and an incrementalist. He believes in incremental steps forward. I frankly think that Breyer deciding that he's going to retire now is a signal that the conservatives have given up on incrementalism. Breyer has always had this ability on the Supreme Court, even in the minority, through the shaping of his minority opinions and the shaping of his majority opinions, to allow conservatives in some cases to incrementally be conservative without going with gusto to the conservative side. It sounds like him signaling now, and listen, again, it's important to say this, he was always going to retire. It was a pipe dream to believe he was going to hang on like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. He's 83 years old. The Democrats are more likely than not going to give up the Senate here shortly uh, in November. 
There's more and more data showing that. So he's got to get out now if he wants the Democrats to confirm his replacement. Is it partisan? Yes. Is it political? Yes. Is the Supreme Court political? Yes. We like to pretend it's not, but there's politics at play here. But Breyer, I do think, is signaling that the conservatives now, they've, they've got the court. It's 6-3. You can say it's 5-4 because of Roberts or Kavanaugh. They wobble back and forth. But it's generally, it's 6-3 to the right. Not consistently, but pretty doggone consistently. So it's time for him to get out of the way because he's no longer going to be able to persuade an incrementalist approach on the court. But who, who, who out there? I, and, you know, I, I'm going to have to research this because I don't know. I don't keep up with left-wing judges. They don't really matter in America these days because of the Supreme Court majority. But he's going to find one. Now, I, my, my guess is he's going to want to go uh, lesbian, non-white lesbian, to hit all of the boxes, check all the intersectional boxes. If he could find a non-white lesbian Muslim who is disabled, uh, Joe Biden would be putting forward that person because the left controls the White House. Maybe is there a transgender jurist? I don't think that there is. Maybe the San Francisco DA would be a great one. It'd be a white male, but hyper-liberal. I I don't think that's going to work. He's going to find someone from one of the circuit courts. So he's going to find a young judge to elevate which means it's got to be a Barack Obama appointee. It can't be a Bill Clinton appointee. They're too old. So he's going to have to find a Barack Obama appointee on a federal circuit court. He's not going to do district court. Who is progressive but pro-business. Now, he could do a wild card. He could pull someone out of a Harvard Law School or a Princeton or a Yale. He could pull someone out of a state Supreme Court, and maybe he would do that. Sandra Day O'Connor was from the Arizona Supreme Court. But I I, I really don't think that's going to happen. Uh, these days, there's a bias even in the Senate uh, and in the, in the offices that help pick the judges to find someone with a track record. You want to find someone who's consistent. And the reason you want to find someone who's consistent is because you got to have a paper trail to ensure their consistency. And in so doing, you know, they're not going to go wobbly over time. I mean, one of the big problems with some of the picks in the past have been they got to the Supreme Court. It is a job for life, y'all. You're not going to impeach a Supreme Court justice as much as some of you may want to impeach Supreme Court justice. You're not. So you get there and you serve for life. So they have to have someone who's not going to betray them. Historically, it is the... Republicans who are more betrayed than the Democrats. Once you go left, you rarely go right. If you're in the right, Washington, D.C. can be very isolating. And if you want to find friends in Washington, they tend to be more on the left. And so you drift slightly to the left because you're lonely. It's why one of the great, great, great uh, things in, in life has been a conservative movement in Washington that builds an entire society around people in Washington and a legal society around Washington with the Federalist Society and others so that they don't feel lonely. They got they go to their own cocktail circuit. They can go out and have their own friends. Uh, isolation has a way of persuading people to do things. That being said, um, they got to find someone who will be able to pass the Senate. Now, friends of mine are emailing 
saying uh, it's probably uh, odds-on favorite pick would be Katenji Brown-Jackson. In fact, I'm seeing this now. Uh, she was a clerk for Stephen Breyer. She's 51 years old. She uh, is born in Washington, D.C., raised in Miami. Uh, she attended Miami Palmetto High School. She went to Harvard, uh, undergrad, magna cum laude, uh, graduated also from law school. She was the editor of the Harvard Law Review. She was a law clerk for the U.S. District Court for the District of Massachusetts, U.S. Uh, First Circuit uh, for Bruce uh, Celia, and then for Stephen Breyer at the Supreme Court for a year. She worked in private practice. Barack Obama put her on the U.S. Sentencing Commission, uh, then uh, nominated her to serve as a judge for the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. And she was there. She issued a whole, whole lot of opinions against both the Obama and the Trump administration. And then Joe Biden put her uh, in March of uh, 30th of last year on the D.C. Circuit Court for the District of Columbia. Now, you have to understand that the D.C. Circuit is the mini Supreme Court. The D.C. Circuit, uh, by the way, she it was the person who replaced Merrick Garland on the D.C. Circuit when he became Attorney General. The D.C. Circuit uh, also had Brett Kavanaugh was there. Uh, Merrick Garland was there. Stephen Breyer had been there, and a number of others had been there uh, from the Supreme Court. And the reason is because uh, the, the D.C. Circuit is where all of the cases against the federal government wind up. It's considered the mini Supreme Court because if you sue the federal government, you sue them in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, and it goes to the U.S. Uh, Circuit Court for the District of Columbia, the, the D.C. Circuit, and so it's like a mini Supreme Court. And so you get all of the major cases there that you would want to get there. I mean, just consider some of the cases that she's dealt with. She's dealt with uh, Diplomat versus Department of uh, Health and Human Services, uh, on the Administrative Procedure Act, Pierce versus District of Columbia on the Americans with Disabilities Act, American Meat Industry versus the Department of Agriculture. Um, she declined to stop the Department of Agriculture from going after the meat packers. Uh, the Center for Biological Diversity versus McLean, she held that Congress stripped federal courts of jurisdiction uh, related to illegal immigrants. She was a pro-illegal immigrant. Um, she handled the U, uh, Committee of the Judiciary of the U.S. House versus McGahn on whether or not they had to hand over records from Donald Trump, and she ruled that, yes, they did. Um, it just she's, look, she's reliably liberal. She's done all the liberal things you want. Uh, she is non-white female lawyer, and, yeah, although she um, is not a, um, she is not a, um, a lesbian. She actually is heterosexual. So, I mean, if you're going for full critical theory intersexualism, that that may preclude her. But interestingly enough, I had no idea. Uh, she married Patrick Jackson. Patrick Jackson is a surgeon and is the twin brother of the brother-in-law to Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House. And they have two daughters. Uh, highly thought of in the D.C. Circuit, uh, new justice or new judge, but highly thought of with an impressive pedigree. That makes a lot of sense, and she's 51 years old, so she'd be there for a while, and she would be a black female on the Supreme Court, something we've never had before on the Supreme Court. So makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of speculation already on Twitter about this one, and she's already made it through the Senate once with Joe Manchin's vote. Now, we must move on. 
I must tell you as we clear the air here and move on to other things about the Eden Pure Thunderstorm. The Eden Pure Thunderstorm actually does clean the air. It's an air purifier. It's filterless. So you don't have to get subscriptions for air purifiers or air filters. You just wipe it out on occasion. It cleans the air. It gets rid of the mold, the mildew, the bacteria circulating around. I need to use this in my bathroom, come to think of my kid's bathroom, before I clean the ceiling. Nonetheless, it works. And right now, you can get three of them for less than $200. You save $200 and... You get uh, you get free shipping. So what you do is you go to EdenPureDeals.com and you click on Eric Erickson. That's my name. You'll see the Eden Pure Thunderstorm 3-pack. Put it in your cart. Click, uh, click buy. Go to checkout. At checkout, you'll see a discount box. And in the discount box, you put Eric 3, E-R-I-C-K, and the number 3. Click apply, and you will see you get a $200 discount. So all three of them wind up being less than $200, and then you get free shipping. So you get three of them, one for upstairs, one for downstairs, one for the basement or the car, wherever you want to go. And in so doing, you clean the air. It's EdenPureDeals.com. It's Eric Erickson, and the discount code is Eric, E-R-I-C-K, the number three, no space, Eric three. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877 877- Nine seven three seven four two five. Is that right? Is that my number? <laughs> I'm distracted. We've got all the breaking news happening. I got all the stuff that I wanted to talk about. Uh, now, now we've got to talk about the other stuff because uh, it, it all kind of intersects together. It, it, it is intersectional here, if you will. Uh, but before I get to any of that, I got to play you this audio. Uh, it, it's actually kind of funny. I, I clicked on it. I, I wanted to talk about this earlier. Uh, I was like, hey, wait a second. That's John. Um, so I got a friend, uh, John Bachman. He was in Atlanta on WSB TV here, and then I'm on WSB radio in Atlanta. Uh, he, he moved down to uh, Jacksonville, Florida. I'm on um, WOKV down in Jacksonville. He's on Fox 30, which is an affiliate owned by the parent company of the station. And he's doing this story, and this has become a big freaking deal in Florida. Uh, in Clay County, Florida, this is happening. Listen to this. Uh, make sure I can get this audio routed properly so it's going to you and not me. Here we go. Local family claims Clay County school leaders held secret meetings with their child over gender identity confusion, and now they're suing. The father says the school didn't tell him until after the student attempted suicide. Action News Jack's Robert Grant joins us live at Clay County School headquarters. And Robert, the focus of this lawsuit is also the reason behind a controversial bill moving through the state legislature. Yeah, and John, part of that bill prohibits schools from withholding information about a child's well-being. It also, under current law, states that counselors don't have that obligation always. Well, this legislation looks to change that. You'll notice in this story we've concealed the father's identity. We're also not naming the school to protect the child. A phone call on January 5th turned into a nightmare for one Clay County family. Because our daughter... Um, our daughter... Uh, attempted suicide by um, hanging herself um, in one of the bathrooms um, of the school. The father says his daughter attempted suicide after a gender identity crisis, but he claims he never knew because his daughter was having secret meetings with a school guidance counselor. It's now the focus of a federal lawsuit filed against Clay County Schools. To protect the rights of parents to be able to to raise their children to to direct the care of their child in a
with their face. And- I, 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 the audio goes on a little longer there, but you could tell that the the father is is not a um, not native. Speaks with a foreign accent. The child in the public school, uh, twelve apparently, is having gender identity issues. And the local school system in Clay County, Florida, the school counselor has been meeting privately with the girl over her gender identity issues. The parents had no idea this was even going on until she attempted suicide in a gender identity crisis. The parents are filing a lawsuit and they should take every single dime from that school system for what that school system allowed to happen to their daughter. It's just horrifying that this is happening in public schools. It's 2022, and guess what? Nothing still makes sense. The whole world seems to be going crazy right now, and banks have gotten really skittish at helping small businesses. They're perfectly happy to help the giant businesses, but what about you? You're a small business. you got to buy a building or build a building, or you need a big loan for a fleet of vehicles to grow your business, and the banks are giving you a hard time. Check out my friends at First Liberty Building and Loan. They can help you nationwide, wherever you are. If you're a small business and you need access to loans, let's say 500000 and up, First Liberty can do it. They've been doing this since the early 90s. The Frost family are friends of mine. They're committed Christians and they're great business people and they are committed to small businesses. Reach out to them. FirstLibertyGA.com is their website. FirstLibertyGA.com. Spend 10 minutes with them. See if they're a good fit for you. See if you're a good fit for them. They want to help you get to yes where the big banks are saying no. Nationwide, they can help you if you're a small business. FirstLibertyGA.com is the website. FirstLibertyGA.com.